Welcome back. You are listening to Thoughts and Tea here on Radio Africa 1804. I am your host, Lori Lee, and um, I'm really hoping everyone had a wonderful weekend. We had some super nice weather, and now we're gearing up for a couple of days of not so great weather with this tropical storm. So please, everyone, stay safe over the next over the next few days. Um, Knowing that this storm was coming, I think I really took some time this weekend to enjoy the sun and be outside, which was really nice. Um, But I have to say the most amazing moment for me was watching Beyonce's new film, Black is King. Um, Well, I should probably say most amazing moments because I I watched it more than once, (laughs) Um, actually three times from start to finish. So... If you haven't seen it, please, please, please put it on your list. Um, Black is King is a musical film and visual album based on the music from Beyonce's 2019 album called The Lion King, The Gift. Um, It was directed, written, and executive produced by her. It's just, if I had to describe it you know in something short I would just say visually stunning right like it's you're you're watching artistry in its truest form um to me it was a a love letter to to black people to African culture to our history to our ancestors you know done in a really modern way that people who are not black and and not of African descent can truly enjoy it um, the cinematography, I think, was just outstanding, you know, really, really beautiful. The colors, the fashion, the music, um, all of the African, you know, the Afrobeats artists that she used, uh, the dancing, the hairstyles, I mean, the drums, the, the images of, of Africa, right, specifically from Nigeria and Ghana. So... I could go on and on about it. I really think it is absolutely worth seeing. I can't say that enough. Um, I had a ton of favorite parts, but the number one, what what really kind of struck a chord with me was uh, Brown Skin Girl, right? And it's so funny because I watched it and I felt it. And um, a few hours later when my sister watched, she texted me right away to say she, you know, it made her cry. It was, it was so emotional. I think seeing this celebration of our skin, our melanin, right? Seeing all these beautiful black women of, of different shades being celebrated did something for my spirit. You know, something really, really strong, something powerful for my spirit. It's the very thing that we are judged and criticized for being put on display for its beauty and its power, you know? And I, I couldn't help but think about what it would have meant to me to see something like this on television when, when I was a young girl, right? To see women who looked like me, who looked like the women in my family, being celebrated, right? Looking like royalty on television. It would have shown me something that I think for many of us was missing, right? When we looked, when we were looking at the screen. 
And that, that brings me to today's discussion. Um, I'm super excited to be joined by special guests, Wesley and Naomi Tego, to talk about what it takes to parent black girls. So I'll tell you a little bit about them. Um, two of my favorite people. Wesley is a house music and Afrobeat producer from Ghana um, by way of Newark, New Jersey. And he is a loving husband to his amazing wife, Naomi, and an extremely proud father to twin daughters, Eva and Cecilia. Uh, in addition to his music career, Wesley also is the chief operating officer of Naomi's skincare and makeup company, Wear Glam. Um, he, you know, does the coordinating of sales and marketing initiatives while providing general counsel for the company's day-to-day -day operations and international brand development. Um, you can get to know Wesley a lot better by following him on Instagram, and I will be sharing um, both his and Naomi's handles on my account so that you can follow the amazing things that they're doing. Um, not just on, on Facebook and Instagram, but also on SoundCloud. You can listen to some of um, Wes's music there. And Naomi, Naomi Wertego is the wife of Wesley, right? And devoted mother to twin daughters, Cecilia and Eva. And Naomi was born and raised in New Jersey, and she still resides here. And um, she has a background in adult learning and also skincare. She's a licensed esthetician and makeup artist, and she owns the beauty brand Wear Glam. She is super passionate about her family, her business, and anything where she can be creative. So, Wes and Naomi, welcome to Thoughts and Tea. I hope I hope I did a good job telling people about you, but I'll give you a chance to tell them a little bit about yourselves in your own words. Things like 
me and my uh, my twin girlies here, and we're going to get into it in a little while. So, um, yeah, that's pretty much it. I'm looking forward to getting into the meat and potatoes of what we're going to talk about today. Thank you. I have to say, hearing that we met 20 years ago is like a little scary. <laughs> I can't believe it's been that long, and I. Yeah, that's so true. So we met, um, like Wes said, in school um, at Fordham University. We were both freshmen um, in the year two thousand. We became friends pretty fast. Like I, I can't, I can't really remember much of my fall semester where I wasn't friends with you. So I think that friendship kind of started super early. Um, yeah, and it's so nice to like now all this time, you know, all this time has passed and Wes is, Wes is married to Naomi, who I, her and I just hit it off right away, which I love. And, and the father, you're a father of two girls. I'm a whole father. Yeah. Like <laughs> you're not like partly, you didn't just like dip your toe in. You just went full tilt, two girls right away. Yeah, I have been taken to do things like that. <laughs> so I have to ask you guys, how did you feel when you found out that you were having twin girls? For me, um, I was very overwhelmed at first um, because I, you know, we, we weren't planning to have children at that time. So of course, we were definitely planning on being together and having children, but at that time, we we weren't expecting this. <laughs> um, we weren't expecting to be expecting. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I was really very overwhelmed and um, really leaned on refuge to provide me um, kind of like a clarity in the plan. I'm a very type person. So I'm like, okay, so how are we doing this? How are we making this work? You know, two girls, you know, less Down. So that, that, that was, I went to put <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine. What about you, Wes? Um, I wasn't surprised when we uh, found out that we were having twins um, for two reasons. Uh, the first reason is um, there are a lot of twins in my family. Uh, Eva and Cecilia are the eighth set of twins. Oh, wow. In my family. Yeah, so it was uh, a high likelihood that, um, you know, there would be twins between us. And I'm not sure, you know, all the listeners out there who are into uh, astrology, I'm not into it too deep, but I do believe there are a lot of uh, consistency between um, astrological signs and uh, the real world. And Naomi and I share the same birthday. We're uh, eight years apart, but June 4th is our birthday and anyone who knows June 4th that falls under the sign of Gemini and Gemini represents the twins oh wow as a kid I always wanted to have twins so that combined with you know she's a Gemini and the twins in my family I wasn't surprised at all that we actually had twins but um it was nervous you know it's our first both our first children and our last children (laughs) (laughs) but um i was nervous but in a weird way it gave me an immediate sense of purpose that i had not previously experienced 
um, in my life. I believe I was 31 when uh, we found out that we were pregnant. And um, it literally changed my life uh, for the better. I was nervous, I was anxious, but I was, I just had an immense sense of pride and responsibility that is pretty indescribable. I, I believe anyone who's listening who um, is a parent will be able to uh, you know, know what I'm talking about. It's hard, it's hard to really put it into words. But uh, it really provided me with an overall newfound sense of purpose, and uh, it made me do things with intent. So mm-hmm. that was kind of where my headspace was when we found out that uh, we would be parents. And at that time, um, you know, Naomi said it wasn't like you guys were planning to have children at that time. So had you talked about what your different parenting styles were? Like, were you guys on the same page, or did you have totally different approaches? I think that we were on the same page. Um, obviously, you know, being in a relationship to know the person that you're with and how they, you know, handle stress, how they handle, you know, not ideal situations. I was very comfortable with, you know, his, his, um, the way that he handled things. So, um, we didn't really have discussion on exactly what type of, um, parenting style that we would have, but being how we both handled situations and how they were very similar, I felt comfortable you know, going, going down that journey. I feel like my parenting style is very, um, actually, I'm like, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, to echo a lot of what Naomi is saying, I believe that a lot of our initial um, connection as partners was really based on our principles. We share a lot of the same core principles about life in general, and um, that has 100% related to uh, how we uh, raise our children. Um, it was a very, very important um, for me relative to uh, my spouse and how we would decide to raise our kids because my parents are from God. And, you know, anyone who's from, you know, first-generation African Indian descent, there's a specific type of upbringing that is, you know, unique and all too familiar. <laughs> you know, like, maybe those from any of those areas can, can attest to that. Like, we are just raised and reared in a very much different way than the Western world. So, initially, it was a thought to me how different would what I know, you know, innately in terms of how to raise a child in the right way differ from that of Naomi's. And um, I will say that it learned some um, twist and turn, but in a good way. It was more, more of a learning curve for both of us because both our first time doing it, but at the same time, merging both our experiences and, and imposing that onto the girls, it was uh, definitely and continues to be uh, an, an exciting and uh, very thought-provoking ride, to, to say the least. But um, yeah, that's if I had to encapsulate what I would say about it. So it continues to be a daily, uh, what's the word that I would say? Adventure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I could imagine. Adventure in terms of, uh, you know, discipline and, you know, this is not just discipline, just the interaction, raising 
movement, you know, particularly in America, particularly in this time. I'm sure we'll, you know, jump into many topics that you have lined up. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's what I would say about that. And one thing I wanted to add as well is that Leslie and I, we are, are huge communicators. And I don't know if it's to our detriment sometimes, but, you know, we, we talk about everything. So if there was a situation or the situation that has come up that I'm like, okay, how should I handle that? Or he's looking at me, how should I handle it? Or how should we handle it together? It, it's only the discussion so we can be on the same page. So... If for any reason we do um, see it a different way or see the situation different, um, we could quickly find, you know, people uh, to make it work for us. That makes sense. Because I'm thinking myself, like, obviously becoming a parent is life-changing. And there's a lot of... Um, you know, just the kind of stress that's to be expected with this kind of change. And I think there's slightly a different level to it. And it, this could be my bias, right? I don't have I don't have children yet. But I'm thinking when I think myself of becoming a mom and I always kind of in the back of my mind have like, it's not just a mom, it's a mom to black children in this world today. And I think that it, you know, what is already a job that is, you know, critical and holds a lot of responsibility is then, you know, elevated, right? Like there's a a different responsibility when it comes to protecting them, teaching them in this world that doesn't doesn't care for them in the way that it should. Right. So what would you say to anyone who thinks that raising girls is just raising girls? There's really no difference between raising a strong black girl and raising a strong white girl. There, there, there absolutely is a difference because it, it, me, it doesn't matter how your child is. You have to kind of meet your child where they are and your family. So everyone has things that are different about them. So what I always try to do is reinforce that they're beautiful because the world may not always, you know, give that back to them. I always try to encourage them and instill confidence in them so when they do get out into the world that they know how to counteract that because that's, what, that's something that always helps me. So um, absolutely is a difference because, you know, when you're home, you have your parents who you know, kind of shoot your ego and to believe in you and to love you. But when you get into the real world, that's not, that's not going to be. So, you know, it, it, it's a point. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Vanessa. Um, you know, even taking a, a step further, uh, for a bit of context, I'm going uh, to tell you about where I grew up and where Naomi grew up and how that played into you know, how we reinforce what Naomi just spoke about, which is really empowering young black girls who thrive in, you know, the world we live in today, you know, the country we live in today. I'm from Newark, New Jersey. So from kindergarten all the way up until I went to college, I was in the majority when it came to, you know, race in school. I they were the, the white people were the minority, if there were any. I don't even remember having any white classmates until I got to high school. And even then, they represented less than, 
15% of the overall population, just strictly due to the fact that we're in a very much urban neighborhood, right? So that was my experience, you know, growing up. I, I didn't know what it felt like to be singled out for being different because I'm a little different. Everybody looked like me. Conversely, mm-hmm. Naomi is from a south, from Morton Town, South Jordan suburb, where she was very much the minority. And up to, up to the fifth grade, she was the minority in, in her classrooms. And, um, you know, she's very much candidly speaking with me some of her experiences that have, uh, let's say, shaped, you know, who she has become a woman and have therefore guided how she imparts knowledge and how she encourages our, our young girls. Um, it's very much of a different perspective. So when we had children, I really found myself leaning into her, you know, leaning on her for her perspective to draw on, hey, what are some of the things that you recall and how can we use those experiences to better prepare Eva and Cecilia for, you know, a world that is, that is new to them. They, they don't know. Yeah. So, um, yeah. It's really different. Like I, my upbringing or my school life was a lot like Naomi's, right? I was definitely always the minority. Um, and I think, you know, when you're, I'm coming, growing up in a Haitian family, you know, I'm spending time with all my cousins, literally up until the point where I was starting school, my whole world was black, right? It was all I knew. And start school and it's like there's only one of me in this whole room and it just it changes everything right like I think you for me I quickly became aware of my blackness and how it separated me from my classmates and that was before a racist word or you know a racist word was spoken towards me I could already feel it like being in the room my teachers were white my classmates were white um, and that, that impacted me in a way, right? Like you have, you start to see the world very differently. Um, so I wanted to ask you guys, what, when do you think your girls became aware of their blackness? I, I feel like it was recently, they're going to be on August 21st. So they're six right now, approaching seven years old. And you know what, it's weird because I feel like it's like, I don't want to say selective, but um, once this whole, you know, um, George Floyd and Black Lives Matter movement, I feel like definitely really started to understand the, the way that the world views Black people. Mm-hmm. But then, in the, in the same breath, they could be drawing a picture or, you know, playing with a doll because we try to, you know, obviously mix it up because that's the type of world that we live in. But I'll ask them, oh, so why did you choose to, you know, this way versus that way? And we say, but in a sense, we're not thinking from that space of black and white, but they absolutely know that they're black. You know, they, they definitely take pride in their their culture and experience. So, you know, I feel like they're still trying to figure it out. They're, they're in that piece now. What would you say, Ben? 
I would say it started much earlier in terms of them recognizing their blackness. I think that, I think that was the question is uh, when did they recognize their blackness? Right. And you know, I, you know, Laura, you know me, <laughs> like <laughs> I you know, am blackity black, 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 black. I am pro black. Everything I love, everything black, support everything black, and because of you know my upbringing, it is you know it was always imperative that my children knew themselves and understood where they come from, who they are, the blood that's running through their veins. They 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 need to know so that way when they're questioned on it, they can answer with pride okay. and be proud of it not you know coming from i don't know it's it's it, their responsibility falls on us to educate them mm-hmm. so we both took a very proactive approach early on with them in terms of making sure their at home reading materials were from black authors uh we showed them images of black people every day uh we you know we locked their hair. You know, you know, Naomi had locks for I want to say eleven, twelve years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, as minority in a predominantly white institution, all through you know elementary school, I had locks for nine years as well. So he, you know, made a decision to do that for. I think we might have even asked them. We had it since they were three, and but we showed them pictures of mommy and daddy having this hairstyle and we showed them the origins of where this hairstyle came from and they wanted it and hey they you know with their hair back and forth with pride like mm-hmm. they see you know all these they're proud of it because they understand what it means and they're, they're proud to belong you know in that way so i think it started um much earlier and to echo Naomi's own sentiment relative to uh uh the george Floyd um murder and the recent race relations that have come to the forefront in an unprecedented way, it really forced us as parents to, to strip away the innocence that children are typically afforded or have been afforded because we deemed it to be that important in this climate that they understand because look you know they're going to go to school and there's going to be other kids whose parents will not take the time to explain to them the truth mm-hmm. you know and if we're not there for source of information somebody else will be so you know while i believe it started early on in their childhood it will be seven in a couple of weeks and i would say for the better part of the past four years since they've been three years old i think they understood that they were different but not in a bad way because we never ever ever made it seem like it was you know less less than you know to be black you know we were proud and i'll you know i'm I'm going on a little bit but i have one more story that speaks to this yeah please share (laughs) so um Eva one day came home and she had a situation and called with her. She was not getting along with a particular girl who was white um, in her class. They had a a situation on their recess grounds where 
I'm looking at particulars, but the nutshell of it was basically they didn't want to play with Eva, and Eva said, why? And then they said, oh, maybe because of your hair, that's why people don't like you. And this was spoken out of the mouth of a, you know, six-year-old or five-year-old at the time, uh, white girl, at school. Wow. So Eva came home and shared that with me. And, uh, you know, again, some of that innocence, you know, had to be stripped away. But, you know, she's better for it today because I sat her down. We, I, I sat down in front of a mirror. We looked at the mirror together. And I said, uh, what do you see? Who do you see? And at first she gave me a look like, what are we doing? Like, why, what are you talking about? But, you know, I, I gently repositioned the face into the mirror. And I asked her, who, who is that? Who, who do you see? And she said, um, I see Eva. And I said, well, who is Eva? And, um, Eva's a girl. And I said, what does Eva look like? Uh, Eva is pretty. She has a, she has short hair, but it's getting longer. I said, what color is the hair? Oh, dark brown. What do you like about the hair? Oh, I could put it in ponytail, do different styles. What else do you see? And then I told him, watch, I said, this is a beautiful young queen. I see someone with amazing eyes and a smile that lights up the room. And I see sunshine. I see, I see the world in you. And her smile let me know that it was starting to resonate with her. She had something special mm-hmm. with her and something that from that point on, no one would be able to take away from her. So their journey with their blackness started early, you know, started early and it, it, it continues and tightened recently, you know, because we've had to have the conversation about, hey, mommy, daddy, why is that police officer on that, on, on that guy's neck like that? Why is he doing that? Like we, again, had to strip away from that innocence for, for their own protection, you know, going into the world. So it started early and it continues on. And it's one of the many challenges that, you know, faces us as, as parents, as, as involved, proactive parents. There's a difference. There's parents and there's parents who are actually doing a job. Yeah. And, and I'm glad that you clarified that, like, We've always known they are black. We've always seen that in a, a good light. I feel like not until recently, though, have they, not until recently that they're learning that everyone does not see them right. the way right. that they see them. Yeah. How they see themselves. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, I absolutely love that story. I think that is super important, right? With young black girls, like looking at yourself in the mirror, being able to see what your daddy sees when he's looking at you, right? Or what your mommy sees and how beautiful you are and, um, you know, the the beauty and the history that lives in your hair and all of these things. I mean, it's just so important. And I think of how my parents were with me um, specifically my mom, right? Like there, I'm obsessed with my mom. There are so many different things I can say about how she raised me that I loved, but (laughs) the, um, for today, for today's conversation, like one of her strongest 
like strongest, strongest attributes in, in terms of being a mom was teaching us who we were, right? Who we were, who our family was, who our grandparents were, um, what it meant to be black, what it meant to be Haitian. And when I was young in, you know, elementary school, being Haitian was like something that people kept secret. Because at the time, you know, anytime it, anytime Haiti was on the news, it was usually something negative or, you know, you'd have, there was just so many, so much negative information um, out about Haiti, right? And being Haitian. And while I remember some kids, right, trying to hide that they, they were Haitian, it was always a question that I answered proudly, right? Like, where are you from? Or whatever. Oh, I'm, I'm Haitian. My parents are Haitian. I, my parents were born in Haiti. I'm Haitian. I'm Haitian American. And the common response was like, really? You don't look Haitian. And then, you know, I'm thinking to myself, well, what is, what does being Haitian look like? Like, why, why is it that you would expect me to look different because I'm Haitian, right? Like I was always really, really comfortable in my skin, um, despite dealing with people who were, who were trying to make me feel bad about it. And I think that all came from the amazing communication my mom had with me about who I was and why I looked the way I looked. So I, I love, love, love that you had that moment with Eva. That's so awesome. Um, but you also, you mentioned George Floyd. So I wanted to know what that conversation was like, right? How do you explain to six-year-old girls that the police who up until now they've learned are there to protect them or keep them safe for people that you would call when you're in trouble would be murdering a man in this way like how, how do you what is that conversation like it was it was absolutely difficult conversation you you know you know the weight that that holds and how difficult that was for all black people that were witnessing what was, what was that is happening, you know? So to explain it to a child after already being in an emotional state, it, it's really, really difficult. But, um, well, and I prepared to go to a protest and they're seeing the signs and everything else. And they're like, what's going on? We, we literally gave them the Sesame Street version first. So Sesame Street actually did have a, um, they had a press conference for kids where they were able to ask questions on um, everything that happened. So they watched that first, and then we sat down and we spoke to them. So they at least had like a baseline understanding of what was going on. And then we answered any of the questions that they had and, you know, went from there. So it was, um, that, that did make it a little bit easier. Um, but it was still a very hard. It was still a very hard conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> even now, I, you know, I'm thinking about it. It's, uh, it was it was difficult. Like a common theme that I've noticed, I keep saying, and you know, it's, it's stripping away the innocence, and it's you know, I don't know if it's important or even prior to George Floyd, I had already had conversations with the girls um, about my experiences with the police, which have not 
not been what the majority of Americans would say their experience has been. And I, I feel like I have to be the first source of truth for my business in all, in all aspects. So it, it doesn't do them any favors for me to, you know, sugarcoat it or to go, you know, just make it seem like it's something that it's not. Even if something is ugly, I need to tell the girls, okay, it, it's ugly. And this is why it's ugly. Not, well, you know, it's not really that bad or it, it, it happened to him, but it's not going to happen to daddy. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, make a fairy tale or paint a false, you know, expectation for them. The number one obligation I have to my, to my children is to tell them the truth. So that way when they experience the world on their own, they have something solid and real to lean on as a reference. So when it comes to George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and then, you know, we kept it going for them. We didn't go into the, all the other, you know, rest of this in peace, all the other, you know, black people who have lost their lives to the hands of police brutality in America. We, you know, we didn't want to strip away all of this innocence, but at the same time, they need to know what's going on in this country because they didn't ask to be here. We brought them here. Right. We brought them to the world. So it was difficult for me. The most difficult aspect was managing my own personal uh, rage that I feel whenever I um, start thinking about that situation and start reliving those eight minutes and 46 seconds and then also reliving my own personal encounters with police in America. That Managing my rage so that the message to my seven-year-old girls does not get, you know, the delivery doesn't mess up the message. That, that was the biggest challenge. It continues to be the biggest challenge for me. So I typically have to speak at a much slower pace, select my words very carefully, letting them know this is what's going on. Yeah. I have to remain that, that beacon of truth. We have to remain that beacon of truth for them. Yeah. That's our job. There's a fine line between, um, like, like what we're saying, stripping away this innocence and giving them the information that they need. Of course, we don't want them living in fear, but they also have to be aware of what's going on in our world and how people could or will view you. So, a few of the listeners out there, they know their children cannot handle. So, it's giving them that information so they're able to process it in a healthy way, even though the things that we're talking about are obviously unhealthy to our culture, but doing the best that you can so it makes sense for your child. Yeah, I mean, it's so just listening to you talk about that, I'm thinking, you know, for some people, when you talk about taking your child's innocence away, right, usually... I would think the first thing that comes to mind is like telling them Santa Claus doesn't exist or that there's no such thing as the tooth fairy. But in our world, it is 
these types of conversations, right? Like this is the level of innocence stripping we're talking about. It's just not the same thing. Um, have you, have the girls ever shared with you an experience they had? I know, you know, Wes, you shared the story about the kids um, on the playground saying that to Eva, but have there been other instances where they have encountered racism and maybe didn't understand what it was and um you know how did how did they deal with that i i don't think they have the closest thing would be that situation with that person they have experienced and something that i was very um wanting them to have lost because i was teased so uh, so i was very nervous about them you know like, you know, just about them having lost as well, knowing what my experience was like, yeah. the fact that their school is very um, diverse. They haven't experienced that, other than the one situation with the hair, but they haven't shared with us um, anything that would have a racist connotation. Gotcha. What about, um, I know one of the things I saw a lot of when I was younger was like just the colorism, right? Like the difference between, okay, you're black, but Lori, you're dark skin, you know, like so-and-so is light skin and that's a little bit better than you. Is that something that has entered their world yet? Um, yes. And I'm going to tell you exactly how it entered their world. And everyone who's listening, um, who has children or little girls, of a specific age pay close attention to what I'm about to say. Barbies. Right? Mm-hmm. Every girl has Barbie. Love Barbies from the from birth. I feel like as soon as the umbilical cord is cut, <laughs> you know that they have Barbies, right? You guys know that. So I don't even know but these girls have accumulated like over 30 Barbies and to me that's a lot I don't know if that's a lot 37 they have 37 <laughs> 37 <laughs> they have 37 different Barbies none repeated don't ask me how I didn't purchase any of them not to my knowledge <laughs> maybe I did maybe I did but sometimes and most parents will be able to identify what I'm about to say you know, you sit back, maybe you're in the next room, you're in the same room, and you're not overtly paying attention to them, but you're just listening, just observing them play. And one thing, girls, let me not say girls, my girls, all girls, they, they make storylines for these Barbies. Very intricate, involved, detailed storylines about who likes who and who doesn't want to go to the beach with the other Barbie. These Barbies have names, they have clothes, and they have different names. They got accessories, pie rooms, everything. And they make these storylines. And for about a week, I passively monitored their storyline creation. <laughs> and it became apparent to me that there were some Barbies who were consistently being left out of the fun things. Like some Barbies never made it to the top of the cheerleading pyramid. Some Barbies never got to ride shotgun in the car. Some Barbies never got to go on a date with the, the boy Barbie named Andre. Like they never 
got to go on the date. So one day, I got down on the floor with them, and I picked up the darkest Barbie, beautiful black Barbie. I like beautiful coiled hair, dressed so nice. Like it was a beautiful Barbie, but she was literally as black as me. Mm-hmm. I said, I've been watching you guys play with these Barbies all week, and what was this Barbie's name? They told me her name. I think it was Tracy or something like that. And I said, you guys have not played with Tracy all week. So I picked up a famer skin Barbie. Still black. Still black. Much, much fair. Looking like espresso and like cafe au lait. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I said, this Barbie always goes to the date with Andre. This Barbie always holding the pool purse. This Barbie's always driving the car. Who's this Barbie? Her name was Stephanie or, or, or Savannah or something. You know, something. Shout out to Savannah, right? That's a good name. Yes. <laughs> Shout out to my niece, Savannah. <laughs> <laughs> but I said, why is this Barbie doing all the cool stuff? And why is this Barbie always left me? And the crazy thing is, I don't even think they realized they were doing that until I said something. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I know they watch this Barbie shows. They watch Barbie. I don't know if there's something that's going on with the Barbie shows. But I noticed it in that way. Yeah, see, so, and that to me... What was that, like, Naomi? Oh, I was saying back to to your question about the colorism, like that that is a thing. Like when the you know, children they they replicate what they have seen, what they, they know. So even though we promote blackness and pride, it's still a thing where, you know, they are going towards the Barbies that may be closer to their tone or than their tone versus using all of them equally or playing with the darker skin Barbies just to that you play with the lighter skin Barbies. So. Yeah, and that to me is so... It's, it's exactly what you said, right? Like, you could be doing all the work that needs to be done in the home, but there yep. is a certain level of teaching that happens without them even knowing, just based on yeah. what they're seeing, right? Like, you're watching these TV shows and... The light-skinned girls are the ones who are always going out on dates. So that's that's what they do, right? Like that's what they're going to act out when they play with their Barbies. So it's like it's not it's not even enough to do what you know you have to do. You have to also be paying attention to try to undo what the world is doing. Right. Yeah. You literally key in on the exact like just think about it from a clear math perspective. Okay, in the average household, if you have children, let's say you wake up at 6 30, 7 a.m., okay, so you're awake. I want to say there's a whole lot, at least in this household, there's not a whole lot of interaction because there's a set routine in the morning. You know, you're taking your shower, washing your face, brushing your teeth, getting breakfast, preparing your book bag, getting ready to go to school. So those are waking hours that we are sharing but we're not necessarily interacting or imparting knowledge or anything, right? 
but it's, it's a waking hour. So let's say that lasts from about 7 a.m. until 8.30 when it's to be another hour and a half in the morning with them. For the next, for the next seven hours at a minimum, they're at school at the mercy of whatever the authority figures will tell them is, you know, the truth. Yeah. Quote, unquote, the truth, right? So an hour and a half to our side, seven hours to their side, to come home at, let's say, what, 3.30, 2.30, 3.30, whatever it is. By the time we are done working, you know, we get ready for dinner, that's when we sit down for dinner at 6.45, 7 o'clock, right? We sit down, we talk about the day, we help them with work, we're interacting. And then before you know it, it's 8.30, it's her bedtime. So we had the hour and a half in the front, and we had maybe two and a half hours on the back end versus the eight hours that they spent cumulatively, like consecutively, at school. And you multiply that times five, you have a full 40 hours of an external influence versus maybe if you're lucky, 15 that you'll have at home. Yeah. If you're, if you're like, you know me and myself, where we have our hands in multiple businesses, multiple endeavors, the weekends still pose uh, a challenge when it comes to investing that time because they have their dance class, right? You know, we have groceries to do. We have a house to clean. We have cars to get service. We have bills to pay. We look up. It's nine o'clock at night on Friday and Saturday, and they're they're asleep again, right? So that's that. You have to work overtime when you have black children. Yeah. Orders. You have to. It's not enough just you know tell them black is beautiful. Yes, yeah, just say oh you look beautiful or wait until Black History Month. Whoever celebrates that, you know, like every month. Every day is black history. Like, yeah. I randomly pull up on these girls and just share black things with them because I'm, I'm with intent to counteract all the hours that they're not with me. I don't know what they've been taught or what they've, you know, ingested mentally. So I have to ensure that I'm doing the work or we have to ensure that we're doing the work on our side to counteract that to at least have a fighting chance that when they're out of our care, we've made enough deposits into them that they, you know, are secure in who they are. They're able to make sound decisions based on what they know as truth, which they learn from us. And also, more, also with your work, like, of course, we're teaching them with the words, but it's also our actions as well. Yeah. So, like, when you were mentioning with that, I love that connection that you love your mom. I love my mom deeply. Like, I, I look up to her. And it's a thing where the, our daughters, they look, they look up to others. You know, they're looking to see, you know, how I wear my hair, how I dress, how I carry myself. Like, they want to be me. So, I also always have to keep that in mind when I am teaching them what a black woman is. So that's absolutely right. Um, yeah, I, I love that you said that it's not just about, you can't just say the words, right? Like they're also going to be looking at you. They're going to idolize mom. And so 
how mom carries herself has right. an enormous impact on how they will one day see themselves too. And if I could just project real quick, that that is so important. Like we mentioned at the top of the show, Naomi owns a, um, a skincare and makeup business, right? Mm-hmm. So kids model what they see, and they see Naomi day in and day out doing makeup, doing skincare routines, doing chemical peels, doing eyelashes. They they see all of this, and. I'll be damned if they don't go and get the Barbies and go and take makeup and put it on the Barbies. (laughs) The Barbies have cut creases. The Barbies have locks. Locks. Locks the Barbies' hair. I didn't know you could do that. Yeah, like, the light-skinned Barbies have locks, but that's some some consolation. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, it's just so important to model behavior good practices that because they're watching you right. don't think they are but they're one million percent watching and they will practice what they see right like do you love yourself do you take pride in your culture do yeah. you uplift yourself because right. even without even saying anything you can sense that so yeah. it's something that's always in the back of my mind I love that. Something else I wanted to to share with our listeners um, that you guys told me you do with your girls. And it's from the moment we had that conversation, it has stayed with me and I have repeated it a gazillion times. Um, So, you know, growing up in the Haitian culture, I was always, always expected to kiss every single person when I walked into a room. Right. That's just what we do. You get to somebody's house regardless of whether you know the people, who they are, you go up to everyone, you say hi, and you kiss them on the cheek. And it didn't matter whether I liked the person, you know, whether the person made me uncomfortable. It's just it's just our culture, right? It's respect. You right. walk up to them and you kiss them. And it wasn't until I had this conversation with you both that I realized, you know, what message that sends to young girls. Yeah. So can you share with, with our listeners your view on this and, and how what approach you take with your daughters? Um, the, the, what Lori's talking about, guys, is something that, is, again, every African and West Indian household is, uh, is expected that at the time of respect, you will defer to the wishes of your elders. So, you know, everybody's your auntie, everybody's your uncle, right? Even if it's not blood, if they're older than you and you're in the household, you go to a, you go to a function, you're expected to greet them in the way that they greet you. And, you know, African and West Indian cultures tend to be very physical when it comes to greetings. You know, just physical in, in, in general. And one thing where I, I don't know where I got this from. I, I don't I don't want to take credit for it because I don't know where or who it came to me, but I just knew that my children deserve choice. And choice is unfortunately, especially in black families, a lot of times choice, especially with young girls, is um exchanged at the expense of respect. It's seen as disrespectful if you use somebody's hug, somebody's kiss. It's, it's the 
disrespectful if you reject someone and breaks. And we took a 180-degree uh, approach to that. It was totally opposite of that. Like, we encouraged choice with our girls, even with me. I'm their father, right? Every father will feel they have free range to, you know, grab up their daughters and throw them in the air, hug them. And it's all with good intent, right? You know, generally it's with good intent that you want to show that up to your young girls. I, I just feel a little different, and I understand that Dan is not going to be around forever. The girls will have, you know, Lord willing, they'll have more alive years without me than they will with me. So, again, it falls on us as parents to... Let them know, hey, Eva, hey, Cecilia, you don't have to do that if you don't want to. It doesn't matter what other people say. I don't care who it is. When it's time for bed, I ask the girls if they want to hug. I ask them, I said, do you want to hug? It's just that simple. I haven't been rejected yet. Thousand percent. They like my hug. You know, I'm lucky in that regard. But if there were ever a day that they said, no thanks, or mm, no, I'm good, Daddy, I'm not going to feel any kind of way. I will glad, I, in fact, I'll be happy that they had the courage to tell me no. Because it's that same courage at seven years old to tell Daddy no, like having a hug right now that's going to present itself when they're 17 years old and they find themselves, you know, at a party or on the street and, you know, I find them attractive. Oh, reaches for their elbow, reaches for their hand. Oh, where's my hug at? You know, they can extend their arm and say, no, thank you. I'm good. With confidence. With confidence. And there's mm-hmm. all too many black and brown girls Girls in general, we're talking about black and brown girls today, but young girls in general in the Western society far too often compromise their own wants and desires from a personal space perspective because they feel they don't have a choice. They feel like they have to, and and that always falls on the parents. I cringe when I see parents go and give him a hug. Oh, that's your aunt. Go give her a hug. Go and go, go and say hi to your uncle. Why? They don't want to. Why? They're telling you that your kids actually have functioning brains and real feelings and emotions and they just might not feel like doing that. And if it's coming from a place of disrespect. It's coming from a place of, you know, it's, it's coming from a place of obligation. You're yeah. obligated to do something that they may not want to do. And as a parent, you have been stripped away their confidence to make a choice that may be in their benefit because you have conditioned them to believe that when someone says do this you do it and that's not right yeah and I, I feel based on my observation I don't know I feel I, you know, I feel like we're in the, in the minority with that mm-hmm. I never forget I took the kids I dropped the kids off at school and during the school year there's this nice very nice elderly black man. I mean, he's you know got to be seven five years old. He's trying to get grandkids off at the 
school. So we see him every day. He's, you know, I don't know him, but I know of him. I see him. He's one of these happy guys. Everybody has a guy who always holds the door, always smiling, passing out candy. He's that, he's that old guy. So he was holding the door as I'm walking, as, I, as I'm approaching the front entrance with even as we see. And he swoops down and he says hi to them and extends his hand for a high five. My girls <laughs> and then look at me and then say no thank you. They don't say no or get out of here or no no. They they say no thank you because that's what we taught them to do. No thank you. And if I could describe his face, like I can't I can't even put it into words the shock. He was so taken aback that this six-year-old child had the wherewithal to decline his high five. Mm-hmm. And then I looked at him, I said, they don't know you. And we kept it moving. <laughs> and that's what it is. And I, it's so, it's like, it's mind-blowing to me because it's not something I ever, ever thought about before we talked about it. And... And now it's just so clear. Like, it makes so much sense. You have so many girls that that grow up just relinquishing their choice. Like, okay, this is what this person wants me to do, and so I'm just going to do it, right? Because we're so used to being put into positions where people touch us or hug us or kiss us when we don't want to. And so we've learned to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, Right, and I just think there's there's so much power in giving your daughter that choice. Mm-hmm. Agree. Thank you. Agree. Yeah, I really, I really, really and love, and I can't. Well, honestly, it was a little weird at for the first time I started telling them that. I said, I, I, anybody who's ever met these girls, whoever's listening out there, or if you ever do meet them, look there pretty advanced for their age um, in terms of like, the conversation and, and the context of conversations you can have with them. We, we speak to them the way we're speaking to you guys right now. And we've done that from day one. Mm-hmm. And they are well aware of um, how to communicate, especially communicate with their feelings. Even sometimes the us, we much, much, because they don't hesitate to give us the same treatment, you know? If they don't want to have chicken to cook, why are we having chicken? What other options <laughs> do we have? Did you prepare anything else? What if I just did this? <laughs> Whereas other people just say fine and eat it, you know? Yeah. But we take that, we take that to the greatest salt that we are aware of work by we know at the end of the day, they will always know that I have a choice. My voice matters. My say means something, and you will hear what I have to say. And the um, most important that young black girls in this day and age understand that and, and have that within them, because you never know when you're going to present yourself where you have to call on that. Yeah, you're abs- you're so right, and um, and I hope like with people listening, I'm just a strong believer that 
we can all learn from each other, right? And I think that was my purpose and idea with with Thoughts and Tea. Like I wanted us to be able to share our stories, our experiences, and learn from each other, right? Like just to hear somebody's perspective, not to say that you have to agree with it, but just to hear a different perspective. And, you know, we talked about so much today, but that one just really, really, I don't know, it just, it is big to me. It's such a big idea, right? And um, for next week, I want to be talking about consent um, and how it's, how consent can, you know, survives or actually doesn't exist at times in our world today. So, this topic is just like it's it's so like front and center to my mind such a big deal um well I, first of all i can't believe we're out of time we're like actually over time <laughs> and yeah it's been like over an hour <laughs> we are in overtime I know, right? I should. We, you know what, guys? I think that I, I've been getting a lot of comments, and I haven't really been able to look at them. I think that we need to do a part two. So I'll I'll work with you guys. We'll think about a part two, and we'll open it up, and we'll actually just like really respond to people's comments because um, I think this conversation is is so super important. Yay. That's really awesome. And like you said, um, you know, I know we're running out of time here, but for all the listeners who um, took the time to uh, invest in this knowledge today, this is a really great platform. It's, it's really helped me, particularly in the past couple of months. When, when Lori told me she was starting this, I was like, you know what, this is awesome. Like, this is perfect. And it's, it, it helped me more than I expected to. It really allowed me to have conversations like I remember one of the first um, uh, episodes was being black man in America and um, I, you know I have two white friends uh, that, that I consider real friends and up until that time we had never been able to have a real conversation for whatever reason maybe I was not confident to approach the topic maybe they certainly were not ready to do so but I sent them a link to your podcast and we went on to have a four hour discussion and it was one of the best experiences of my adult life because it was something, you know, as you get older, you, you tend to not learn new things, but I learned so many new things and the table was set for that by, you know, by this podcast. So I encourage you guys to follow it. It's available on SoundCloud. Apple, Spotify, um, I'm missing one of the platforms, but, you know, <laughs> Rivia, Africa, 1804, this is, you know, every Monday, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, it's, it's thoughts and tea, and I don't have it today, but we get a lot of thoughts today, and um, it, it's really, really good, you'll definitely benefit from it, I, I can say that with 100% confidence, so make sure you guys are following it, liking it, sharing it. It's, it's necessary and it's the one confident it'll do the same for you and you guys, you and your family. Thank you so much, lawyer. Thank you both so much. I mean, Wes, that just touched me so much. It's exactly what I I hope to make people feel right to just encourage conversation. So 
Thank you so much, both of you, Wes and Naomi, for joining me on Thoughts and Tea today. Um, I, like I said, we need to continue this conversation. We'll do a part two. We'll open it up to questions and comments from listeners and, and just keep it going. So thank you. Thank you so much. No, thank, thank you. Take care. Stay tuned out here, please. Awesome. And for our listeners, as always, if you have a friend or colleague that you think would have enjoyed today's discussion, please let them know the show will replay on Wednesday at 6. And remember, like Wes said, you can catch up on past episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and also Google Podcasts. Um, if you enjoyed this Thoughts and Tea Hour, please share the links with your friends and your family. And thank you so much for listening to Thoughts and Tea.